think you missed what you think you missed. Psalm chapter 50. So if you don't have a Bible, we, have, we will have the text up on the screens in just a second. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take one home. Actually, we have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. Maybe you're new to the Bible. Psalms is a book in the very middle, so grab your Bible like this, open it up right to the middle, and you'll probably be in the book of Psalms. If you see Proverbs, go to your left. If you see Job, go to your right, and you'll be there. Then find the big number 50. All right, that's Psalm 50. All right, Psalms is a book of the Bible that is kind of a collection of songs. Uh, and, well, I happen to think it's going to be valuable for our time today. So I don't know, um, I don't know who doesn't like the movie The Princess Bride. Um, maybe you have seen it, maybe you haven't. If you haven't, you should. But The Princess Bride, man, it's just good fun. Uh, it's it's not only just this really good movie, but it's kind of this cult classic, I think, that's just full of these super memorable characters with these super memorable lines. Um, but there's one line that, for me, just kind of stands above the, the rest. Inigo Montoya, the Spanish swordman, hears a word being used improperly for the umpteenth time, and he turns around and goes, I don't think that means what you think that means. And I absolutely adore that line. Now, if you're a fan of the movie, you probably have a different favorite line. For some of you, it's another thing that Inigo Montoya says. You can probably rattle it off right now. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to. There you go. So, a lot of y'all, that's your favorite line. For some of you, uh, your favorite line is Wesley repeating over and over again, as you wish. As you wish, as you wish. And then there's that weird group of you who think that the best line is, marriage is what brings us together today. <laughs> and those of you who have not seen the movie yet all think I'm going crazy right now. You should totally see the movie. And I'm actually thinking that when we have our August movie night, that this is going to be the movie that we're going to watch. Uh, okay, so there you go. It's, just, it's now official. All right, we're going to watch The Princess Bride. Obviously, you're allowed to like any line that you want from that movie. It's okay. It's a free country, whatever. But I actually have this as my favorite line for a very, very specific reason. And that reason is that it's because I actually find myself thinking exactly this on a normal basis. Can anybody relate to that? Mm, I don't think that means what you think that means, right? I would imagine that many of you probably find yourself in similar situations from time to time. There's this, there's this thing, and for some reason, it keeps getting misrepresented, misused, misquoted by people who end up twisting that thing into something that it was never actually intended to be. You ever found yourself in that circumstance where you're looking back and going, I don't think they actually understand what's going on here. I don't think that thing means what they think that means. And so there are all kinds of things in our culture where they get this, this, this treatment. Misconceptions are just all over the place. And so uh, like, like the weird dorky guy that I am, I actually spent a lot of time like on Google this week just trying to research misconceptions that people have in our world. And I spent uh, a little bit of time in the office doing that, and I came up with some of my favorites. For instance, Napoleon wasn't short. Did you know that? Napoleon wasn't actually short. That's the common claim, though, right? And there's caricatures of him everywhere. 
that make him look short. What, in fact, that was the first cartoon that came up in the Google image search, right? That, that's just what we think. And we've got all kinds of cultural examples that make us think that Napoleon is short. But actually, he was 5'7", which was tall for a Frenchman during that time in history. So where did the short thing come from? Well, if you're English and he's kicking your rear end all over the battlefield and you want to make fun of the guy, what do you do? You make fun of the guy. And so that's how it got started. The whole he's short thing was started by British in order to make fun of him, to caricature him while he was just whipping their tail, right? Here's another one. There is no such thing as a poor man's copyright. Do you know what a poor man's copyright is? It's when you send yourself something in the mail so that a federal agency put a date on it, and so people think that that gives them copyright protections. But sending yourself something in the mail doesn't count. You have exactly the same amount of copyright protection as if you hadn't sent it through that federal agency. All right. Number three, the Great Wall of China cannot be seen from space at all. <laughs> it's like 20 feet wide at its widest part. You can't th- see things that are 20 feet wide from space. It's not like eyes don't work that way, right? And so it's commonly thrown around that the Great Wall of China is the only man-made object that can be seen from space, right? Not even a little bit. You can't see things that are 20 feet wide, but there are actually thousands of other things, man-made things, that can be seen from space. And so things like man-made islands, major freeways, lots of factory buildings, all can be seen from low Earth orbit. And that, that doesn't even begin to talk about how you can see cities just lit up like a Christmas tree at night every night. Those are man-made objects, right? But you can't see the Great Wall. But I've got one more for you that's definitely my favorite that I found this week. Despite the fact that literally everyone in this room thinks that they will last for eternity, survive the apocalypse, Twinkies only have a shelf life of 45 days. (laughs) Though they have never lasted that long in my presence. I'll just have to take the expert's opinion on that one, right? Sure, 45 days. Yeah, that's how long they go. So there are all kinds of misconceptions out there, but the reality is that a lot of times there are a lot of misconceptions in here too, right? Like, like there's this thing that, that people think, even attribute to the Bible, that's either not in there at all or in there, but it's misquoted and misrepresented as something that we would call a proof text. A proof text is when you make something, uh, take something out of its original context and make it mean something else. By removing it from its immediate surroundings, you force it into a mold that it wasn't designed to be in, right? Now, sometimes that's done intentionally by people with nefarious motives. Sometimes that's done by people who are looking to twist and looking to undermine good things. And sometimes it's not intentional at all. Sometimes it's just the fact that we're lazy and we fail to read our Bibles well, right? But either way, the result is the same. Things It's misinformation. Something is shared and it spreads and then it takes on a life of its own, right? That's kind of the way things work in our world. You can tell the truth as often as you want, but as soon as something gets misrepresented, that thing spreads like wildfire, right? It just goes everywhere and you can't put it back in the bottle. And while we live in a world where getting untruths back in that bottle might just be impossible, well, we can at least handle our end, right? We can at least... Like, handle our little faith family. And so, especially if we're going to be called a people of God, a people who worship and follow a God who sometimes calls himself truth, right? Maybe the truth ought to be more important to us than anybody else, right? And so, that's what I want to do with this little summer series. 
going to be kicked back. It's going to be relaxed. But over the next several weeks, I want to take a look at some of the most egregious examples of proof texting in the Bible and just kind of set the story straight, right? I want to, in a lighthearted but also truthful way, go, you keep using that verse, but I don't think it means what you think it means, right? Sound fun? Good, because this is what we're doing. All right. So who's our first offender? Psalm 50, verse 10. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Say hello to the verse for Christian fundraising, right? Whether you're talking about prosperity gospel preachers or capital building campaigns or money management curriculum or honestly the one that stings me the most, missions support, missions giving, this verse is going to get trotted out every time somebody in the Christian world needs to raise some money for something, right? That's the way it works. And for good reason. Because he does own the cattle on a thousand hills, right? Is anybody dumb enough to argue with that? Is anybody going, nah, it's all mine? <laughs> no, God does own the cattle on a thousand hills. That statement is true, and I believe it is. Is there anybody more trustworthy than him to provide for the things that we need, for the things that he's called us to? Like, that kind of makes sense, right? I mean, after all, he doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called, right? Isn't that the, the thing we often say? He doesn't call the equipped, but he equips the called. Except for the fact that sometimes he calls the equipped too, right? He's, he's allowed to do that. It's, it's his kingdom. And so in the Christian subculture that we've created for ourselves, the Christian subculture that we usually find ourselves living in, Probably every mature believer in this room has, has come across this verse used in these ways before, right? You've, been on, you, you've received the promotional material for the next capital building campaign, the next great project of the church. And you've gotten a letter from that young person who's going on a mission trip to fill in the blank and asking them for you to help them support them get there, right? Somehow, this one verse has become the go-to slap a verse on it kind of thing for Christian fundraising. It's the meme that we use. It gets thrown on all kinds of stuff so that we have a kind of a spiritual stamp of approval on our efforts. I can give you some quick examples. I took three minutes of a Google image search and immediately came up with these. You've got a number of books explicitly titled The Cattle on a Thousand Hills. This one, the, uh, the little tagline there says, I know it's hard to read, Money Management for God's People. I'm not sure what the lake is supposed to represent in that picture, but it is pretty, right? So they got that going for them. Okay. Then you got missions agencies using it. Uh, the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and global teams and their bot with partners own the pigs on a dozen hills. Okay. So what this little thing is saying is that with the help of their giving partners, this missions organization is alleviating poverty and building up pig ownership of, of, of indigenous botwas, wherever the botwas are. All right. And that sounds like a good thing, right? Like that sounds like something we ought to get behind. It's probably worth our time, probably worth our effort, probably worth our dollars. And so like that's, a, that, that's notable. Like I, I kind of want to figure out more about what they're doing and see how I can help, right? But now we've got one verse, one single verse associated with both money management, and missions giving. I'm not sure they bridge the gap. 
But we can keep going. Here's another book. The Cattle on a Thousand Hills. And the tagline there says, Learning to Pray Through God's Word. The Cattle on a Thousand Hills. Learning to Pray. So now we got a book on prayer, right? And so we're in a third category of stuff for this one verse. The main thesis of this book is that if you pray certain scriptures back to God, you can kind of force him to do things. Like that's the main thesis of this book. That if I, if I pray God's word back to himself, I can kind of corner him a little bit and I can get him to do what I want. How do you think that's going to work? Probably not well. I mean, it's a bold move, but how do we think it'll play out? Like praying scripture is a valuable thing, but are, can we corner God? Is that something that we can actually pull off? Probably not, right? And then there's examples like this one. Uh, Bishop Brian Tamaki, God has promised increase. He has called you to have abundance. Just straight up prosperity gospel. That's top row of Google image search when you search for this stuff. So this teacher believes that you if you have the right amount of faith that God is required to bless you. That's, that's what he's purporting here. That he's required to give you comfort, required to give you security, required to give you health and wealth. After all, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? If you can't see in the picture, he's actually holding up a wad of cash as he talks. Think I ought to try that? Probably not. But I've got another example for you. There's even a hymn that was written in 1948 that's titled, He Owns the Cattle on a Thousand Hills. It made it into some lesser known hymnals of the time, but it never really got any traction. But you can find some covers of it on YouTube now. But the text of it says this, He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. He owns the rivers and the rocks and rills, the sun and stars that shine. That's, those are true things. Wonderful riches, more than tongue can tell. And this is the main point and the main theological emphasis of the song. He is my father, so they're mine as well. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I know that he will care for me. The message of this song. Yes, there's other messages in it, but the message of this song is that God owns everything, but don't worry, because so do you. So do you. You belong to him, and so all your needs are met, and you've got God's unlimited resources in your own back pocket. That's the message of this song. So make no mistake, Psalm 50 verse 10 is used exactly this way over and over again in our camp, right? This is the way the Christian subculture often treats this verse. But if, if Christians are just as capable of proof texting as anybody else, then is it possible that we might have some blind spots? Right? Is it possible that there are things in the Bible that we need to pay extra careful attention to lest we get them wrong? And so let's look at how the Bible actually frames Psalm 50 verse 10 this morning. Psalm 50, starting in verse 1, you'll see that it says a, a psalm of Asaph. So who's Asaph? Asaph was one of a handful of Levites that David appointed to kind of be worship leaders, music leaders in the tabernacle. Uh, half of the psalms were written by David, roughly half. Uh, then about another 40 or so, uh, so there's 150 psalms, about half of them were written by David. About another 40 or so were written by people that we don't know who wrote it. There's no author attributed to them. And then like 12 of them are written by Asaph. All right. And so when you see Asaph in the Bible, you think, oh, okay, that's the church's music guy. 
right? That's kind of who Asaph is. Asaph was the guy responsible for writing and leading music in the, in the tabernacle and then later the temple if he was still around then, all right? So Psalm 50 is a song written for the purpose of singing it in corporate worship. And in verse 1, it says this, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Okay, so our boy Asaph immediately comes out of the gate by using three different titles for God. What does he use? He calls them the mighty one, God, and the Lord. Or in Hebrew, El, Elohim, and Yahweh. All right? So what are those three words? El just means the, the powerful one. One who is strong, right? And could honestly be used for any strong ruler, but God seems to like calling himself that every once in a while. And then Elohim is the, the Hebrew generic Hebrew word for, for a God, right? But again, God uses that word for himself over and over again in the Old Testament. And then Yahweh is the personal covenant name for God that we see all the way back in Exodus 3 when Moses is talking to him through a burning bush, right? It, it, it has the tone of I am. I be, I exist. So Asaph is swinging for the fence right out of the gate here, right? He is, his divinely inspired song, meant to be sung amongst the peoples in worship, makes a beeline for showing off God as the strong one, the God who is in charge, and the God who is eternally self-existent. And that's just the first half of verse 1. Like he's, he's throwing some theological haymakers here. But also in verse 1, we're told that the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun into its setting. So what's going on there? Well, the picture here is that God is 100% in control over all creation at all times. Sun up, sun down. He's the one who commands. He's the one who rules. He speaks and summons the earth. It's his. He makes the rules. That's what Asaph is saying. And much like what we've been talking about in our Romans series, like all of creation ought, and the word is ought, to recognize this reality. But of all the peoples in creation, there's one people who ought to catch up to speed a lot faster than everybody else, right? Who is that? The Israelites. His covenant people. And so in verse 2, Asaph starts talking about Zion. Zion is an Old Testament nickname for where God and his people meet. Sometimes the Bible uh, uses it kind of as Israel as a whole, speaking of the whole nation of Israel, the, the political state. Sometimes the, the Bible uses the word Zion when it's speaking specifically about the city of Jerusalem. Sometimes it's talking specifically about the Temple Mount, uh, or depending on what part of history, either the tabernacle on that Temple Mount, all these kinds of things. But here... This time, Asaph is thinking more, I guess, abstractly. He's talking specifically about the people of God. The people who make up God's people, the Israelites. In other words, out of all of the peoples of the earth, the ones who should best see and understand the reality of God's sovereign rule are the ones that God has consistently made himself known to and done nice thing after nice thing after nice thing for. Like if anybody's going to figure out that God is God and they are not, it should be the Israelites because they've seen it firsthand. That's Asaph's point. The perfection of God's beauty shines forth through his people. 
If anybody understands his goodness, if anybody understands the graciousness of God, it's the ones he set apart in a massive, massive way. And then in verse 3, Asaph says this, Our God comes, he does not keep silence, before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge Selah. Now that is a picture, right? We're told that God is encircled with a devouring fire and a mighty tempest. Hey guys, what do you think that giant firestorm is for? Think it's just there for, you know, showing off a little bit or... He's going to do something with it. I think he's supposed to represent something about his character. And verse 4 tells us, says he calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge who? His people. God, in all of his beauty and in all of his might and in all of his lordship over creation will act as the perfect judge. And so gather everyone together because it's time to announce his ruling. That's what Asaph is saying. But don't worry about any kind of unfairness. Don't worry about any kind of backhanded, underhanded, shady deals because God is perfectly righteous, That so perfectly righteous that even the heavens can't help but declare over and over again forever that he is the king of the cosmos. And then our boy Asaph goes, Selah. If you've been in church long enough, then you've come across this word before. But for those who don't have much of a church background, let me try to explain it to you really quick. We don't know what Selah actually means. Like, we, we don't. There's, there's no Hebrew equivalent. There's no language equivalent from other uh, things during that time period. We don't really know. But it always stands in a weird place in the biblical text. We think, our best guess, we think that it's kind of a musical annotation that means rest. Like, those of you who have been in church a while, you kind of know that. We, oh yeah, so that means rest. We, we think that's what it means, but here's the reason why. It's an educated guess. It's because every time it's used, it always comes after a haymaker of a line that the best thing to do in that moment is just to sit there and marinate in it. Just soak in it for a second. Think about what just was said. And so Asaph rolls out, a Selah here. Rest in, think through this reality. God is the Lord. He is mighty. He is beautiful. The whole earth ought to see it, but especially his people. As the sovereign king of the cosmos, he will judge all of the earth in infinite righteousness. Hey, you know what? This kind of sounds a lot like our Roman series, doesn't it? Maybe, maybe Paul isn't talking about something new there, is he? Maybe he's just saying exactly what the Old Testament also says about God. It's just a crazy coincidence though, right? Let's keep reading. Verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. 
O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Okay, so again, for those of you who don't have much of a church background, uh, the, the sacrificial system was the long list of animal blood sacrifices that God commanded the Israelites to follow after he rescued them out of Egypt, right? He calls them out of slavery. He brings them to himself. He gets them across the Red Sea. And he says, now that I've saved you, I've got a long list of do's for you. Do's and don'ts. And so part of that do and don't system was the sacrificial system. And they were supposed to sacrifice specific animals at specific times in specific ways for their sin. Not, not just, just regular generic sacrifices, but specific sacrifices based on specific sins even. You do this, bring a bull. You do that, bring a goat. You do this other thing, bring a turtle dove. That was the sacrificial system. It was the way that God provided for them to draw near to him, even though they were heinously sinful and he is holy. Those two things don't get along together in the same room. And so he created a system for them to draw near to himself. And here in verse 8, we see God tell them verbatim that they're actually faithful in offering all the things that he told them to offer up. They're faithful in bringing their sacrifices. They're doing exactly what he had commanded them to do. Mechanically speaking. But apparently that's not all that he requires for them or God wouldn't be bringing this up right now, would he? So what is the problem? Well, apparently God wants more from them than mere mechanics, right? This is most clearly seen in something that was written in the New Testament hundreds of years later. In Hebrews 10, the writer of Hebrews says this, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Impossible? Like it doesn't actually work? Animal sacrifices don't actually accomplish anything? Well, if that's true, then either A, God commanded an incredibly violent sacrificial system for his people for absolutely no reason at all. I mean, just kicks and giggles, I guess. Just wanted to see the blood flow. Or, or B, God was always, always aiming them at some far larger reality than dead animals. See, all the mechanics only ever existed in order to teach them some much, much bigger truth. The entire sacrificial system was built out to teach them that, that they were the dependents in this relationship, right? And that it was by God's grace alone that they could ever draw near to Him. He is holy and they are not. All those sacrifices were meant to point them to the one-time infinitely valuable blood sacrifice of another. Jesus. Hey, they, they were still getting the mechanics right. That, that's good enough. That, that, should, that should mean something, right? Slaughter another bull. No, God tells them how he feels about it in verse 9. It says this, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. And our theme verse for the morning, verse 10. 
For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. God says, you think I want your bull? It's already mine. That's my bull. It already belongs to me. I don't just own your cow. I own all the cows. And guess what? I own all the hills too. That's what God is saying. I just let you borrow it for a little while. You think I'm impressed that you offered it back to me? You think I'm impressed that you try to give me your little offering? Here you go, God. Here's your share. Am I supposed to be grateful? Grateful that you slaughtered a bull in my name. No, no, no. I want your heart. I want your heart. I want to see, I want you to see how desperately you need me to provide for literally everything for you. That's what I want. The tone here has absolutely nothing to do with you tapping into the riches of God and for your next great project. The tone here has absolutely nothing to do with uh, us being good stewards or us providing, being provided with comfort or, or even us trusting that God will provide. Those are all true things, but that's not what's going on in Psalm 50 verse 10. In Psalm 50 verse 10, God is saying, hey cowboy, all your stuff is actually my stuff. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. I don't ask that you give me some sacrifice because somehow I need something from you. No, no, no. I demand, command that sacrifice from you because you need to give it. And she keeps fleshing this idea out in verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. In verse 12, God says, If I were hungry, I wouldn't come to you. You think I need you? There's a theological reality that, that I, probably a lot of people in this room need to lock down for the first time this morning. There is not one single point in all of created history where God has needed something. Ever. Acts 17, 25 is clear. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The God of the Bible is incapable of need. Not one second in all of eternity past or eternity to come has God been desperate for something or been lacking something. He doesn't need. But let's just say, just play the hypothetical game for a second, that one day the infinitely complete and eternally self-existent creator of the cosmos discovered that he was actually hungry, right? He got a little rumble down in his tummy and he came to us begging for a cheeseburger. Has God ever begged for anything? If, if he were hungry, do you think he would, he would come to us? Let's just say hypothetically that he actually discovered one day, you know what, I should eat something. My blood sugar's getting a little low. Let's do something about this. Is he in that moment going to come to me? He will not even then in that hypothetical moment sullenly approach me. He's the God who spoke 
the world into existence by the power of his mere voice alone. He speaks and it occurs, right? He could have all the quarter pounders with cheese he ever wanted by the mere power of his will. Does he need me to hand him a a burger? If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. And then through Asaph, God asks a question that, that would have made immediate sense to his original audience. He says this, Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? So these are the actual religious beliefs of all the people surrounding the nation of Israel right now. The false gods of their neighbors. They, they, they needed to be fed and they needed to be bathed and they needed to be coddled. They, they needed man to carve them out of a rock or out of a log and then take care of them. And the true God in verse 14 goes, Hey, you know what I want? You know what I want? I want, I want you to make an offering, a sacrifice of of thanksgiving to me. I don't need or want anything from you. What I want from you is you to realize how much you need and receive from me. That's what I want from you. I don't want you to offer me some pithy little sacrifice out of a sense of duty because I'm not indebted to anybody. I don't need anything from anyone in any way whatsoever. I want you to call on me in your day of trouble and trust me for your deliverance. That's what I want. And unlike all those puny little wannabe gods of everybody else, I'll receive glory by being the one who saves those he doesn't owe anything to. We and God are in infinitely different tax brackets. But he will be glorified by making himself known to us anyways. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need your bull. But sure, let's hijack that verse for fundraising purposes though, right? Is that better? No, it's not better. I don't think that means what you think that means. See, when it comes to the Bible, proof texting is always a sad little attempt to make God's word sound better than what we originally thought it was. As if we could make God's word better. Right? Anybody capable of, of rephrasing what God said in a way that will make, make better sense? Like, is that something we can pull off? The end result of proof texting is always that it makes things worse than what they originally were. Less weighty, less impressive, less life-changing. The real version is massive. The real version of Psalm 50 verse 10 is that God is God and we are not. And the sooner we recognize that, the sooner we come to terms with that, the better off everybody is. That's what it means that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Does God provide? Absolutely He does. There's no good thing in your hand that did not first come from His. Not a one. Are his resources ever stressed because you know he's been spread a little too thin? He's he's been you know a little too uh, liberal with his budget, and he needs to pull back some. Not for a second. He does equip called. He does provide freely and joyfully provide for all those he's called to his purposes. 
God does own the cattle on a thousand hills. Jesus himself said that we should never worry about what we'll eat or what we'll drink or what we'll wear because our Father is good and he knows that we need all these things, right? There's other places in the Bible we can go for that stuff. But in our finite and sinful hearts, or at least mine, I don't know about yours, we have this nasty habit of taking these great truths of God and twisting them just a little bit manipulating them just a little bit, ever so slightly shifting them to make them out to be something that we can celebrate about ourselves instead of Him. We do it all over the place in the Bible. More wonderful riches, more than tongue can tell. He is my Father, so they're mine as well, right? Just a tiny tiny little shift, but it reveals that deep down in our hearts, all of us, every single one of us are glory thieves. We go looking for it. But for those who look past the proof text, for those who look past the proof text and focus on what the Bible actually says, the great truth remains, right? Our God is the mighty one. He is God. He is the Lord. He is the righteous judge of all the earth. And even though he needs absolutely nothing from you, he wants to give you everything. And that everything starts with himself. He makes himself known to those who have no business knowing him. He does that by being the great sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived sinlessly and he died sacrificially on the cross. And he did so to make payment for our sin. And now all those who come to him in repentance and faith are reconciled to him, the great king and yes, even the great cattle owner. So if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, we want to give you the opportunity to respond to him in faith this morning. I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, I'll be down front if anybody wants somebody to walk them through what that looks like. If you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, you can respond to God's word too. And I think, I think you do that just like we always say, by pressing in. You repent of sin and you lean into God and who he's called you to be. So what does repentance look like this morning? Well, I think it starts by asking a very serious question. Are my religious actions the manifestation of a grateful heart towards a good God? Or are they nothing more than a mechanical attempt to fulfill what I think the requirements are? It's a massive question, but if we answer that question faithfully, we might just be in the healthiest place we've ever been in. I think there's a second response from Jesus' follower this morning. It's the disciple-making response. Who is God putting in your pathway this week that needs to know the completely self-existent creator of the cosmos? The God who, need, who neither needs nor wants anything from them, but still wants to give them himself. Who needs to hear that the God who will judge all the earth in perfect righteousness also stands ready to reconcile them back to himself through his goodwill instead of their effort. How does God call you to respond today? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some leaders up front here to, to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. But let's all respond to God's word today. Father, thank you for the scriptures. 
Thank you for Psalm 50. Even though we get it wrong sometimes, even though I myself am guilty of just scanning over things and looking for things to to exalt myself or satiate myself, your word remains. And so humble me before it this morning. Use it to breathe life into a weary soul today. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you open eyes to see this morning? You are not only judge, but you are the good king who loves with an unspeakable love, an indescribable mercy, and a forever changing grace. So would you make yourself known to people today? For those in here who, who already know you, walk with you, would you draw us deeper to yourself this morning? Help us better align our worldviews and our lifestyles to match who you've called us to be. Those who understand that everything in our hand came from yours. Those who understand that there's nothing that we could give back to you that did not first come from you. And so there's no putting you under our thumb. We are to live with thankfulness. But God, that is something that requires you to change our hearts on. That's not something we're naturally inclined to. So do a mighty work this morning. In Jesus, your name we pray. Amen.